Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hi everyone, it's Michael McNutt with Weedy. From our recently concluded national conference in Washington, D.C., we have a chief information security panel maintaining security and privacy as patient data and technology evolves. The participants, Paul Carrillo, Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer with Inova Health Systems, Bezawit Subner, Chief Information Security Officer, Senior Director of Security and Compliance with CRISP Shared Services. Beth Creed, Supervisory Special Agent, Major Cyber Criminal Squad with the Federal Bureau of Investigations. And the moderator, Greg Garcia, Executive Director, Cybersecurity Health Sector Coordinating Council. Um, I'm Greg Garcia, and I'm pleased to be here to, to, to moderate this. Um, this, this is a great panel here because this is really a, a really important cross-section of the healthcare and, and government uh, partnership that we need in order to get better at cybersecurity. I'm just going to start briefly and tell you what is the Sector Coordinating Council for those of you um, uh, who were so misfortunate not to see my talk yesterday um, about the Sector Council. But it's, but it's important that I put it in this context because we are a, the Health Sector Coordinating Council Cyber Working Group is, it's a, we are the industry side of a public-private partnership that is part of a 20-year um, policy foundation that brings together government agencies and their critical infrastructure counterparts in industry to consider how to um, better secure, to be better um, at security and resiliency for a given critical infrastructure. So healthcare is critical infrastructure, just like financial services and telecommunications, electricity, oil and gas, everything that the nation depends upon. And so this is a policy foundation that says that private sector, the owners and operators of the critical infrastructure need to organize ourselves around identifying and mitigating these threats and to work with our government counterparts and across your given sector. So of course, healthcare, you know, we have health IT and we have a health provider here, but there's also the medical technology guys, there's the pharmaceuticals, there's the plans and payers, there's public health, and these are all an interconnected interdependent ecosystem. So the Cybersecurity Working Group um, consists of 400 organizational members working together with the Department of Health and Human Services and FDA and um, with law enforcement, with the intelligence community to figure this out. And what are the roles and responsibilities? You know, what does industry have to do, whether it's self-regulation or comply with regulation? What's the government need to be doing with policy, with grants, with subsidies, with incentives, technical assistance? Um, This is a team sport um, because we're getting beat, getting beat by the adversaries. Um, And and so it's good that, you know, we serve in the sector council as the connect point for these key stakeholders here. Um, So I'm pleased to, to to be moderating this group and let's just dive right in. So the first thing we want to do is... Um, you know, you all in health information exchange, you are the circulatory system of the healthcare, the information circulatory system of healthcare, right? So uh, data is king. And when data is brought down by a cyber attack, we don't have healthcare. So what are those threats? What's, where is your business going to suffer? What are, the, what, are the, what are we seeing now and on the horizon that you ought to be worried about and be preparing for? So I'm going to hand it off to Beth to give us that landscape of where we are. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Beth Creed. I'm a supervisory special agent, and I'm out of the field office here in Washington, D.C., also known as Washington Field. Depending on where your headquarters, we have 56 field offices throughout the country. So you will have a field office with a cyber squad and a supervisor like me um, that will be local to your AOR. So if you don't have a relationship with the FBI, I highly suggest you make one. The FBI, especially cyber squads across the country, and especially this year, will be, we have a, an extra incentive. We're going to be reaching out to you, especially large systems, in order to make sure that you know who to go to at the FBI when and if a, a cyber incident occurs. So you know who to pick up the phone and talk to. Um, so if you don't know someone at your local FBI office or if your CISO doesn't know one, please reach out and, you know, we can start to, to establish those relationships because you don't want to be establishing those relationships during a crisis. Um, and oftentimes what happens to me and my squad is when we call up a victim company and we say, hi, we're the FBI, we really need to, to talk to someone about a cyber inc incident, they end up hanging the hanging up the phone on us. I mean, imagine if you were to get a call even on a Saturday or a Friday night, you may not believe it's the FBI either. So again, if you have that established relationship, it makes our job a whole a whole lot easier as well. Um, so basically to, to give you a little bit lay of the land, um, the FBI really specializes in threat response. Um, there is a whole presidential policy directive. It's called PPD 41, if you ever want to Google it, that really lays out the government's responsibility when it comes to cyber. So when you, when you think of a threat response, think of the FBI. So we are very threat focused. In the Washington field office, we have a whole squad that, that deals with Russia, national security cyber threats. We have a whole squad that deals with primarily Chinese PRC cybersecurity threats. And in my squad, we have a whole squad that deals with Middle Eastern cybersecurity threats, mainly from emanating from Iran. And then we have two squads that deal with financially motivated criminal cybersecurity threats. Those squads tend to focus on um, ransomware and ransomware is a service and the hackers that are doing this work in order to earn money, whereas a squad like mine tends to, um, you know, really deal with those threats that have a nation state backing. Um, and then so every every field office may have a different speciality because WFO here in D.C. is so big, we tend to cover them all. Um, and then when it comes to asset response, that's when you're going to be working with DHS CISA. So think, you know, they're going to be helping you respond to an incident and help you get back on your feet again. Um, they're also going to be involved in making sure you're mitig mitigating against certain threats. Um, but we're the ones who really uh, focus on the threats and who's behind, you know, attacking you. We will, we launch investigations. Oftentimes we may already have an investigation open up at the FBI about a particular incident that may, may be affecting the entire sector. So we're the ones to call and we really want to investigate what happened. We're going to ask for, for data and images of servers, depending on what happened, in order to figure out what happened and who is behind it. So hopefully that gives you a, a 
bit of an idea of what the FBI does. DHS CISA plays a very important role, especially again, because you're critical infrastructure. Um, so they will also, you know, be working very closely with you should you um, come under a very critical cybersecurity incident. Yeah. And, and CISA does have some, you know, valuable, a lot of our Healthcare members um, value some of the CISA technical assistance. They have something called the Sci-Hi program, cyber hygiene. They'll come into your environment. They'll kick the tires. They'll they'll do some uh, some pen testing and vulnerability checks, and so give you a report card on what you need to need to fix. I, I would add that we we in the sector council work very closely with HHS, and they have really recently over the past couple of years started to, 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 to think strategically about what their role is. Well, they're not a cybersecurity agency, but they are the healthcare government organization that needs to consider all hazards against the healthcare industry, whether it's a hurricane and flooding or wildfires and earthquakes. That includes cyber attacks. So they're, they're trying to organize their various regulatory optives, the operational divisions, whether it's um, ONC that you guys interact, OCR, on uh, HIPAA, uh, CMS, FDA, um, you know, they all touch cybersecurity in some way, like it or not, but they're all operating under different statutory authorities. So someone's got to herd those cats and make sense of how HHS can actually be a constructive partner um, left of boom before um, FBI and assistance. Help help on the right of boom side of things. So they're really getting getting organized that way in terms of what what are the policies they can be doing, um, uh, can be modifying to help help the industry ahead of time. So um, on that, I, I just want to I want to talk with um, our two security um, experts on the private sector side, um, and really start with with cyber hygiene. Is what what are what are the most basic things we need to know. Um, as security professionals in the healthcare environment and health exchange, and and um, how are we how are we getting beat mostly that we should be paying attention to? Um, so so let's start um, on the far end. Let's Bez go ahead and tell me what uh, what what you've got on your mind every night before going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I think uh, thank you for um, having me here, and thank you everyone for staying and listen to us. Uh, part of cyber hygiene uh, is starting with the basics, right? Uh, asset management, know what you have so you know how to protect, you know how it's configured, and if something happens, you know how to go and see what version or where it lives so you can patch and remediate uh, and have the, those continuous improvements in management. Um, when you're thinking people, um, so that's from a technology side and even um, uh, processes. And so from people's standpoint is educating your users, educating uh, everyone to understand what you do, why you're doing it, how they're part of the solution, and not necessarily having that mindset of, oh, people did this, or, you know, someone didn't configure, or they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't save their password correctly, or they reused their password. All of, Instead of the blame aspect from a cyber hygiene standpoint is educating having people be part of the solution so that everyone that works at the organization understands they're, they're part of the cybersecurity hygiene for the organization and they're part of the solution and you strengthen that process uh, and then have them incorporate their ideas and how a process that has been implemented can easily be circumvented, right? I think there's a time when we deployed um, a DLP uh, for data loss prevention and we thought we had closed a bunch of the tools or a bunch of ways where people couldn't take data out. But someone came to me and was like, oh, Bez, did you know that we can get teams from 
the web version, but you block the desktop version, right? So instead of saying, how dare you do it? Instead, I was like, I appreciated that they told me. I said, I won't stop your workflow. However, we do have to disable the, you know, the option for teams. So when you encourage and you have them become ambassadors for their teams and their expertise into your world, that increases their engagement. So from a cyber hygiene standpoint, they're part of the process. Um, they're part of the solution. Uh, and then from overall process, making sure people can understand uh, when you're thinking cyber hygiene, uh, if we want to roll out multi-factor authentication, telling people it's not just for the work they're doing, but also their personal lives, right? How does it affect the personal life so that people can feel like they, the process at work is to protect the data? We all, you know, we're serving the mission vision wherever you work and uh, extend that into their personal life. So then what they learn, they can take that home and or they can bring that back to you. So, so what keeps me at night with all of these things, if we can actually get the basics done of know what you have, incorporate the people, teach the process, uh, have a full life cycle um, and be open to it because from a security standpoint, we don't know everything and we shouldn't acknowledge that. You want the experts to be experts from, I think, the hygiene standpoint. When you go to developers, you don't want to tell them how to do their job, but rather say what you want done, uh, sort of the sandbox or the guardrails and let them figure out the how. Then, they, um, they're, then they're empowered. So. so I just want to pull, pull on that a little bit, though, about... Um you know, we're, we're, we're talking to health information professionals here in exchange. And I had dinner the other night with, with a CISO of a um, big hospital system that was hit years ago by, by ransomware attack. And he, he had, um, he had some saucy comments about, um, about um, APIs um, and all those apps that um, are offering me all kinds of health monitoring um, and he said, well, we have to connect to that for the purpose of, you know, interoperability and information. What, what do you think about that? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on that, actually. <laughs> uh, and I think if it's, you know, to the data um, inf information blocking, right, I think the intent and it is appropriate that we should have access to our data. We should be empowered to get the data when we need it and have that data inform our you know, physicians, you know, our care coordinators in order to make an informed decision. However, there needs to be proper vetting and controls implemented for the apps that are going to connect, you know, make it available, any third-party app. That becomes sort of what happened when we first started working with Facebook or when not working, but when we started using Facebook, we thought, oh, it's free. I can log in. I can say who's my cousin, who's my father or whatever, you know, you're connecting this ontology of your family. So with that comes the risk of when we make this data available to anyone with any tool that they're using, the patients, we don't know their level of understanding of that tool. What is that tool going to, what is that app going to use the data for? If it's free, you are the product. We are the product and the data is the product. So I think that's the fear that I have. And it's also how do we educate organi uh, individuals and patients because, because we're all patients. And then in turn, how do we empower the organizations that have to respond to the requirement and helping them assess the tools um, that they have to connect to? So I think if we have, you know, and then we bring in that logic and the common sense of like, how do we make sure we're not repeating the same mistakes that have been made in other industries, in other sectors. 
Great. Thanks. Um, all right. So we're talking about hygiene, but then um, hygiene is, is left of boom, as we like to say, and then boom happens and you've just been whacked. Um, and uh, Paul, tell us about the impact. Okay. So the health system is in business to provide health and sometimes some serious ransomware attacks and other cyber attacks can actually disrupt that operational imperative. So talk about some of the things you have to be thinking about right of boom. Well, as soon as boom happens, the, the first thing that's running through my head is uh, how bad is it? Where is it at right now? Where is it moving to next? Has the EMR already been hit or is, or is that still up and running? Um, but just before I address that, I want to I want to touch a little bit on preparatory actions. This group handles information, handles data. We often say, take care of the basics, do the basics first before you start doing anything fancy. Um, basics, if if they were easy, they'd be done. They're not done, so apparently it's not easy. So when we're dealing with data, information, information exchange, pulling information out of systems of records. We need to be thinking not just what problem are we trying to solve, what objective are we trying to reach, but who might abuse the information and by what means. How are we protecting that information in transit? When it gets to the third party, how long are they going to hold on to it? Those things would be extremely helpful in mitigating a lot of the um, uh, uh, breach situations that we've had to actually deal with in the last, just the last year. Uh, we've dealt with four of them. All of them were third parties who had lost control of the information, either because it's the email compromise or somebody was in on their, on their uh, file server or whatever, um, but it was outside of our control. So those are the things we really need to be thinking about when it comes to data. Now, when boom happens, <laughs> a lot of things happen very fast. Um, uh, first, there's the assessment of, of scope of impact and whether this is growing and growing fast. Um, we, we've had experience in this field and in this area, uh, unfortunately, too much experience. Um, but it was really a matter of containment. You know, can we get to containment quickly, quickly enough so that we can maintain current service levels? Uh, if an organization can't maintain or, or can't establish that containment, uh, then you have to really start shutting down systems. Uh, and typically, you'll see this. You'll see somebody go offline and everything is offline. Well, that's because they couldn't determine containment. Uh, and now they're really wondering, well, what's, what comes next? Uh, what, what systems have been poisoned? What systems, what data has been stolen? Uh, so that's a really critical thing that happens right when, when the call comes in. And it could come in at any time. Um, the follow-on to that, of course, is, well, how quickly can we start to re restore services? Um, I don't know how many folks here are part of an actual healthcare provider but the very first question that gets asked is, well, how long are we going to be on paper? Uh, the day shift doesn't know how to do paper. Physicians don't know how to read charts or do charting on paper. Uh, so it becomes a major stressor. They don't and, even know how to do handwriting anymore. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so most of these scenarios are trained and tested at night. And the expectation is that they'll be down, the system will be down for no more than 72 hours. Well, first of all... <laughs> The attack can come at any time, and if it's a significant enough attack, uh, the health organization is down for weeks, possibly months. I think 16 weeks is, is right now the current average. So that's, that's a pretty significant impact. If you have to be on paper for all of that, there's no data flowing. There's no 
There's nothing. Uh, that's pretty impactful to an organization. But we really have to think much more uh, succinctly about how we handle information before we're in a crisis mode. Because once we're in the crisis mode, it's containment, protection, um, and then begin to restore services, which might happen in a few days, or it might happen in weeks, or it might be a couple of months. And ultimately, who is impacted? The patient. So this is something I've actually been um, promulgating uh, internally, and, and that is uh, cyber safety is patient safety. Uh, we, we, really need to be we really need to understand why we're doing cyber in the first place. It's not because we have to or we want to. It's because cyber safety equates to patient safety. If we are not thinking about how other people will abuse the system, I can guarantee you somebody is. Uh, they're looking for ways to monetize, and if they can monetize, they will do that. Uh, we've seen it. We've seen it for five years now. I think 2022, we saw a lull. We thought that was a plateau. We thought we were getting ahead of it. 23 has demonstrated that, no, we were actually incorrect. Uh, so for five years, the trajectory has, has been pretty similar to China's GDP, actually. It's mm -hmm. kind of going up in that same curve. I don't know where the end is. Uh, so we have to think differently about how we handle information and how we secure our systems. And we, you know, we have data for that. Um, <clears throat> uh, Journal of American Medicine, uh, so it's called JAMA, um, recently over the summer released uh, an article. It was written one by one of our member, member doctors, uh, an ER doc from UC San Diego. And um, they did a study. There was a major ransomware attack at a major healthcare institution in Southern California. You all know which one that is. Um, and it was looking at not only the impact of the ransomware attack on that institution, that is, um, that, that the EMR, EHR was down, that scheduling systems were down, so patient care was delayed or canceled, ambulances were diverted, um, and they looked at not only at the patient impact at that system, but regionally, because when suddenly you're diverting all of your ambulances because you can't take any more patients, it's got to go down the road, 10 miles, 20 miles. And those smaller systems in that region aren't prepared for that surge. So it's a cascading effect. This is, this is real existential patient, patient safety issues. And um, we in the sector council, if you go to our website, we have, um, Paul was talking about, you know, right of boom. We have some guides for best practices prepared collectively by some of our better resource sophisticated organizations about what do you do right of boom. Um, it's a, it's a, a guide called um, OCCI, the Operational Continuity After a Cyber Incident. Um, this is what you do when you uh, are facing several weeks of, of downtime, potentially, how do you maintain operations? University of Vermont in October of 2020, three years ago, suffered that. They were down for six weeks. No email, no phones, no scheduling systems. How did they operate? So they were a big contributor to this. They've been quite public about it. Um, so when, when we are right of boom, um, or even left of boom, some, some of our best, um, best defense is, is information. And often that is threat information. And often that threat information is classified. 
You know, I, I, I used to work at the Department of Homeland Security and I would call private sector people in and I'd say, and it happened every, every holiday, be on the lookout. We have, we, have, we have information that suggests something could happen. Can't tell you what it's going to be, just pay attention. And that's just so useless um, because we need to know, ex- and I understand, you know, being classified mostly is about protecting sources and methods. The information itself is less important than who gave it to you and you want to protect that source. But um, Beth, there, there is an effort um, within CISA and HHS, has been for years, and it's very complicated. Can we give security clearances, more security clearances to guys like Paul? Because they're on the front lines, in this case of healthcare, or someone's on the front lines of financial services or telecommunications, you got some, you got some dirt that we could use to protect our systems. How do we get, you know, either do we need more security clearances for the private sector so that you, we can get high fidelity information? Or do we have too much information that is overclassified? Mm-hmm. How do we act on, we know something is coming, but we can't tell you. Yeah, over overclassification is an issue throughout government. I think most people in government will will probably admit to that. I think, you know, we recognize, and especially even as an agent in the FBI, um, nothing is worse than going to a company um, with a very vague, broad, what we would call a victim notification that doesn't contain any specifics for them to act on. It's just as frustrating for us as it is, well, I'm sure it's way more frustrating for you on the receiving end. Um, I, I know there's been a very concerted effort to get as much information at a lower classification as possible. And we work with our intelligence analysts to the extent that we can to push out as much information in terms of public reports. Um, In the cyber division, we have what's called flash reports, and we will put as many indicators of compromise in there as we possibly can, including IP addresses, hash values that threat hunters can go, um, you know, take and and look for. So there definitely is a concerted, you know, concerted effort to get that out there. Um, You know, especially with ransomware variants, we're really, you know, there's a, a push from the top to really get that information out as quickly as possible. So that's one. Um, If there is very specific threat information about a particular company, um, what we typically do in practice is identify, um, you know, an executive such as a CISO, and we will give them a one-time clearance of what what we would call a one-time read-in. So we would bring you, we would invite you into the local FBI field office, have you go through a non-disclosure order to sign, you know, to to receive the classified information. So, um, and then at that point, we would give you as much specifics from a classified perspective as we can. But um, also, so we will do that. And that is a common practice. Um, Another thing is sometimes the classified part is more of who is behind it. And sometimes that's, I mean, it's good to know, like you're interested in knowing that, um, but from like a boots on the ground, you don't necessarily need to know, you know, if it's Russia, China, Iran, you need to know like how to mitigate that threat. So that's where those open source reports kind of come come into play. So just because you're receiving something unclassified, sometimes the only classified part being hidden from you is we might know who's behind it or which particular department from which country is behind it. That's usually the classified part. Um, 
So yes, I, I just am not aware of a more concerted effort to get more people, you know, clearances. It's a very lengthy process. Anyone in government knows that, um, you know, you have to have a sponsor. So typically what happens is these kind of one-time clearance read-ins if we think you really need to know um, classified information. Right. You know, I, I think I was first asked that question in 2011 uh, about clearances for um, um, folks in the private sector to have access to information. And I'm still working inside the bubble. And, and I can certainly add strength to that, that, that that's really not useful or germane to the situation at hand for a victim organization. The situation at hand for a victim organization is you've been hit, you now need to respond, you need to recover, and then you need to repair because whatever hit you, that's what you need to repair and, and avoid in the future. It's useful to know how it happened and that's what you have a forensics company for. Um, so really kind of having more information isn't really it. But what I will beat the drum on is it is important to share information. So if you're holding information or withholding the fact that, oh, we've had a problem, we're not going to share it with anybody, then nobody benefits from that lesson. And I can tell you right now, the threat is sharing. They share prolifically. If we don't share, we're not going to make any headway on this at all. So we really need to share our experiences, share what works what doesn't work so that we can all learn from these situations when they do happen. How many of you here and you at the table, I think you are Paul, are members of the Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center? Okay, well, you all ought to be. And um, this is not a, it is a plug for them. I, I tell everyone um, that I meet about cybersecurity, just echoing exactly what Paul said. Um, and in fact, by my friend and colleague, the former national cyber director, Chris Inglis, put it perfectly. You have to beat all of us to beat one of us. Or spoken another way, none of us individually is as smart as all of us collectively. And so what the health ISAC is, and there is an ISAC for every critical infrastructure sector. They are sort of quasi-official partners to the government as well. Um, CISA depends on them for their collective intelligence, so they have got about a thousand organizations in the membership, all sharing with the recognition that it's okay. we're all in this together. Yes, we've all been hit, or yes, we all have vulnerabilities of one sort or another. That's not a competitive issue anymore. The, the competition is is the adversary. So you know, three musketeers, right? So we have to be sharing this information. Um, that we can be better prepared when, you know, hey, this just happened to me. Really, what, what happened? What did they do? How did they get in? Uh, this way, this way. Watch out for this. Got it. And then you've got a collective defense. So it's just, it's, it's critically important. So, um, you, you know, I mean, I, I kind of align myself with, with Beth. That I, getting, getting security clearance is not, it sounds cool. But it's not always going to give you actionable information quickly, which is what the Health ISAC does. It's just sort of a real-time, again, another information circulatory system. Um, another question I had, um, and, and maybe Beth can, can talk on this, if, how many of you have international operations? Okay. Now, this, is, this is a big issue uh, in terms of cybersecurity and cyber espionage. One of the things we've been working on the Cyber Working Group is protection of innovation capital. So you guys all have, you know, you've got your, your secret sauce and you've got your, your engineering designs. 
Um, yet we have adversaries that are nation states that want some of that action. And that's industrial espionage of vaccine data, of research data, of health data, particularly health data that's valuable, um, health data about, um, uh, about uh, important government officials, prominent people. Um, and how do we protect that? And part of that is establishing relationships with, with FBI and the intelligence community. Um, I don't know, uh, Abez, if, if you have thoughts about if there's, are, do you have international operations? No. Okay. Okay. But it's something we all have to be focused on because um, uh, folks like China do have, you know, their five-year plan, which includes significant um, technology theft. Uh, you know, Greg, you, international for sure, but just, you know, just because you don't have international operations doesn't mean you have to have an eye towards that as well. Right. You just mentioned that China's five-year plan, they publish these, it's public, you can read it. Um, so you know where they're going to be. Um, if you operate in any of those spaces, yeah, you're on the list. Don't know where on the list, but you will be on the list. So you know you want to pay attention to those things. For us right now in the cyber realm, yeah, it's definitely extortion. Um, that's really what's what's eating our cake right now. But you have to pay about pay attention to those things as well because they are there. They are they are prescient. So. Maybe I'll add to that is to the point like you don't have to be, I think, in an international um, business to, to be aware. But one, it's understanding the capacity of some um, state sponsored actors have. Right. There is time resource. I think every time we hear it's not a matter of if it's when I think that's because as long as you have enough resources and time dedicated or if you have bottomless resources, if someone know if an organization or a group know how much data you have and how much they could hold that against you or leverage against you, they're going to, they, they can come after you. Right. And then part of it is also the services you provide and um, understanding the security you need to have to the, to the people you're providing that um, services to, right. If we're in health information exchange, we provide services to healthcare professionals uh, and all the ecosystem of the healthcare professionals, but also to patients. So the organizations understand outside of the U.S., let's say, that if they attack your environment, they can not only extort you, but now there's like this idea of sec secondary extortion or even tertiary extortion, right? They can identify the patients and then go to the patients directly and say, the organization is not paying the money for me to not expose that data. Now they go to the, you know, direct victims. And so that becomes, that's, that's another thing that we need to think about. It may not affect us directly because we're not outside the U.S., but it would affect patients because if you have the data and if you're, you know, important enough to them or um, viable enough for them, I think that's a thing to do. And then a good example to look at is 23andMe, the latest hack, right? It's not an organization that didn't necessarily do what they were supposed to do as much as if we don't educate patients, all of us as consumers, we may be in healthcare, but in the financial sector, I think it would have been nice to know about credit monitoring when you didn't need to do credit monitoring or freezing your credits when you didn't need to freeze your credit. So if we have the same, if we can have that transferable aspect of uh, education, um, it's, it's going to, you know, it's going to be viable for them to come after you and your data and your patients and the consumers. And I had one other thought as, as I was sitting here, um, you know, nation states, they're just, 
they're desperate for information. So um, just as an example, of course, during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, there's a particular nation that was getting hit super hard. You better believe that they were Googling every um, you know, expert when it came to vaccines, when it came to, um, you know, communicable diseases, they had Googled everyone and man, were they hitting them hard with social engineering. So if there's a nation state out there that's really struggling with a particular health problem and they know the United States has information on it, experts on it, doctor specialists, you better believe that they will be using cyber methods to get at that information. And overall, I know we were talking one of the, the, the biggest threats still is just social engineering. We are all humans. We are all, you know, we want to help people. Um, and so if someone asks you for help, even via email, people are more likely to click. Um, so the threat actors that I've like spent the most amount of time on, they're just so good at getting people to click on things. And that is what will, you know, that's a cascading effect for everything. So a lot of, you know, the defense is just education, education of anyone that has access to your systems, you know, recognition of doctors that they could be a target, especially if they specialize in something that another country really needs information on, because if they can get you to click, they will figure out a way to do so. Okay, I, I have a lot more I'd like to talk about, but um, um, I'm, I'm not. I'm mindful of time. Uh, we came on early um, and we should leave early soon to make way for the for the final panel. But I want to give the audience an opportunity to ask any questions. We've said a lot here. Uh, I got a, a hand raised over there. Do we need a microphone? Uh, this is a little bit less of a question, more perhaps of a recommendation. Um, Marianne Yeager uh, was up here earlier uh, speaking about apps, and you kind of started with that. API security, connecting into the hospital system, and your colleague was uncomfortable with that. Um, and I, I can understand why. Uh, and I, I work in that space, sort of that, the, the standards in that space and the protocols and how it works. I don't think that's going to stop, but it hasn't started yet. Now, those apps haven't really started connecting in the way that they eventually will through uh, Tefka. So this is, we have an opportunity right now to influence how that occurs. So the recommendation I have is it might make sense for either HISAC or HSCC, or maybe both, to work with Sequoia Project on what their implement implementation guide says, what the API security is, how you do it, and there's a lot of opportunity right now to fix something before it occurs. That's an interesting, interesting idea. Um, we were talking about five, China's five-year plan. The Sector Coordinating Council has a five-year plan as well. We're trying to project what does healthcare look like in five years? What are the trends and what are the cybersecurity challenges posed by those trends and what do we do about it? And we got the major trends on your far left and then the major goals. What is the end state? And one of the end states, one of the major goals is something like, you know, data will be, health data will be interoperable, secure, available, very broad brush thing. But that includes anticipating this you know, this whole universe of apps and, um, and information aggregators and such that are not regulated. Where does that data, where's my health data go? How do we bring that into the family of regulated information? And so, um, you know, we will probably say something like that in broad strokes and then moving, moving down to your right, here's the objectives, here's how to make it happen. And then here on the far 
right, are the uh, metrics. Did, did we do it? Or how well did we do it? And, and that's, that's got to be a big part of it. And then between now and 2029, when I finally retire, um, we're, we're going to be working on those tactics, maybe with the Sequoia project. That's kind of over my head in terms of standards development and all that, and not within the ambit of the sector council. But, but we, can, we can facilitate that kind of activity with government and with industry participation. If I could just make a, just a brief comment. So you're spot on. That's exactly what we need to be thinking about. You know, the other topic we haven't even touched is MLLs, um, uh, or LLMs rather, sorry, uh, and AI, right? We're on the cusp of something really big and really useful. We should be thinking about abuse channels. We, could, we should be thinking about ethics and morals around how we, how we police that. Um, and, and there are other emerging areas. So certainly API security, that's big, and that's something that we should be tackling now before the you know the the horse gets too far out of the barn. Because once that happens, it'll be just like if you all, you all remember 1990s when we connected to the internet and didn't think about firewalls, and then had to step our way back. This is our chance to actually do it right. So we should be thinking about these things now. Well said. Other questions? Yes. Hi. Thanks. Um, Greg, yesterday you alluded to uh, the Littles, which are your, your smaller clinics, your federally qualified health centers, rural communities, my industry, dentistry. Um, what advice do you have? Because we still get targeted. I've been having these conversations for a long time with, uh, with small dental clinics and it's, oh, you're kind of, I'm sorry. Um, but what advice do you have? Because we don't have CISOs. We rarely have chief information or chief technology officers. We might have an IT dude um, <laughs> if we're lucky. So, I mean, but we're still targets of these, these threats. Like, what advice do you have for our industries and the little people out there that need to take this seriously, but we just don't have the resources? Yeah, and, and I'll defer to my colleagues on that, but, but um, on our website, we do have one of our major publications is the hiccup the health industry cyber practices volume one is just for the small so it's pretty easy basic stuff and it doesn't require a large investment it's about protecting your email you're going to have to spend some money to do it in an email protection system you're going to have to spend a little bit of money to do some some use some basic tools that will protect your environment alternatively and it's always a mixed bag hire an outside, you know, you, you, you hire an accounting service to do your payroll, you hire a legal team, and well, maybe you've got to hire a managed security provider. But in terms of homegrown stuff, we also have a video training series called Cybersecurity for the Clinician, Insert Dentist, um, uh, eight-part series, 47 minutes in total, good for one uh, CE credit. Um, and it's, what do you need to know? You're a, you're a dentist. You're not a, you're not a CISO, but yeah, you got to pay attention to cyber, whether you like it or not. And here's just the basics, pay attention. So that's free on our website. It's on YouTube. It's in a learning management file. Um, but, uh, Bezer or Paul, you know, there's, um, there is help. <laughs> DHS is reaching out. So find out who your regional coordinator is and, and reach out there. Um, uh, FBI wants to talk to folks, so reach out to your local field office. Uh, they will call you back, and if they're not, call a different field office until somebody calls you back. Uh, they might be busy. Um, 
Uh, but also find out who the healthcare providers are in your area that have CISOs and try to get a relationship with them as well. Yeah. I am more than happy to speak with people about cybersecurity because I tell you what, when I go to sleep at night, I'm thinking about cybersecurity because I'm worried about, you know, is my phone on? Will I hear it ring if it rings? And it's usually the first, I thought about it this morning again. It's mm-hmm. usually the first thing I think about when I get up. So um, certainly reach out to CISOs because they all have ideas as well. And, and they may be willing to do some partnerships with you as well to kind of help you at least get to that state. Because here's the thing, uh, you're right. The littles are directly, directly in the targets. As we get better at getting them off of the back of the bigs and the mids, they're going after the littles. That's exactly where they're going. All right. Um, we are out of time, and let's thank all of our panelists. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weekly podcast, where the healthcare IT communities connect, collaborate, and create solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association at our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us, and be safe.